When you bop, bop, me, bop, right in the hand, okay? Still bop me and drop your right hand, okay? Boy, you ain't paying attention, man. Just bop, bop, didn't touch me, bop. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today in the podcast, we have Albert Rios, former MMA fighter, former Bellator fighter, and now school teacher. So we'll kind of go into the whole struggle of being an MMA fighter, the struggle being pursuing your dreams, fighting, and trying to make a living. So from trying to get into MMA to being an MMA fighter, to life after MMA. How did you work your way into MMA? Did you do the amateurs first? Um, well, back then, there, there was no amateurs. It, it, you know, there wasn't any camo. Um, so we kind of, there were, there were things called like pancreas, which is... When are we talking about here? Uh, I think it was like 2001. 2001 is when... Um, and camo is, Paul? It's California... Athletic Association for Martial... Yeah, something like That's that. That's the amateur league. The amateur, yeah, the camo. It's not even that old, right? No, it's fairly recent. So we only came up with the amateur system. I think it's only like 2010, 2011. And I don't know if other states have an amateur MMA system developed. I think California might be one of the very few, if not the only one. So you started in the Wild West days where there was no camo, <laughs> no amateur league. You just... Because at least this way, there's a tier system where almost like school, you go here and then you graduate and you go here and so forth. What did you have to do? Because even trying to get into MMA, it must not have been clear at first. No, I mean, personally, I didn't even, I didn't even know what it was. You know, it wasn't even called MMA. It was called No Holds Barred. So it was like NHB. That's what the guy, you know, the guy that brought me into it told me what it was called. Um, he still has his gym. His name is Savant Young. He, um, Wait, how did you even meet him he was uh in high school he he was a, he was like a senior when i was a, a sophomore freshman and um i remember when we were i would go to the gym you know like typical guy I'd go to bally's be doing my bench press and stuff like that and he would always be handing out flyers like hey man go check me out in saboba or fresno or it was called i think i forget what it was called it was just like nhb fights that were this was in high school you said this was when i uh, got out, right when i got out of high school about like 98 99 and then um and it just so happens I ran into him in a gas station and I was playing, uh, just finished kind of playing college baseball. And then... Uh, so you ran into him again. Yeah, I ran into him again. So you used to see him hand out flyers at the gym that you used to go to right after high school and then you went to college. So you were a college athlete. Yeah, I was playing baseball. Is that the sport you grew up playing? Yeah, pretty much baseball, football, like track. I pretty much grew up playing that. Um and then baseball, I kind of prolonged it at high school. and then No martial arts then? No martial arts. Not even boxing? I mean, a little bit of boxing. My dad would kind of show me boxing, but um, no. So you went from a nonviolent sport, <laughs> yeah. chilling out, and where'd you go to school? At Eagle Rock. No, no, I mean in college. In college, uh, I went to I went to a few schools, but ended up, ended up my last part was at Long Beach State. Weren't you in Hawaii too? Yeah, Hawaii too. So you were like always by the beach. Yeah. <laughs> Nonviolent sport, just chilling, living in Hawaii, playing baseball. And then 
before in the wild west days there was no holes barred right so less rules there was no there was no publicity about it either i mean there no one knew about it so it wasn't on tv i mean there was like the ufc but um so you came back to california so what happened there i just ran into him in a uh in the parking lot getting gas because he lives in the same neighborhood and i was like oh man when you have another fight just kind of making talk with them and then he was like oh not for a while but i'm just training right now i'm trying to get back into it and then he was like you know he's like come by my house we'll, we'll i have some pads and some mats i can lay out on my my uh the garage and um and i'll show you a little bit of stuff and then uh so the next day i went to his house and he started showing me little by little what made you even interested in going to his house and learning because you could have just like yeah yeah cool yeah, man right. and then and just flaked on him or whatever i think a little part of me just was like, wanted to do something new you know i just was like oh you know i'll be cool to try it had you seen mma before no <laughs> i've never seen mma before because that's the interesting story <laughs> because now everybody who's coming into mma they grew up wanting to fight mma but the early guys they didn't even get into it because they wanted to be mma fighters they kind of stumbled into it like you did exactly i mean there was a couple guys that stumbled into it it was just you know when i when i looked at him and he was telling me like oh get down on the floor i want to show you what side mount is i was like just like everyone when they're a white belt their first reaction when they get on the floor and they're getting on side mount they're just like oh what are you doing to me so you hadn't even done any bit of high school wrestling you know maybe if i saw high school wrestling i would be like oh that's cool it's kind of the same thing but our high school didn't even have wrestling so i kind of just went into it kind of blind and then we did a few things he showed me a little bit of boxing a little bit of like kind of wrestling defense and then some moves he showed me the uh like when he gets in the guard just what is it called the, the nutcracker no the uh the can opener <laughs> and then he was just like punching me and then his brother and then like they just kind of did a uh a, a gauntlet on me his brother would just like just roll me over and start getting me an arm bar this other guy would just start getting me in a triangle and i'm like geez because somebody like savant he's so old school that guys like him they didn't even train formally there's formal systems now Back then, guys like him would just drop into a school over here to learn a little bit of jujitsu, go over there, learn a little Muay Thai over there, you know, learn a little bit of wrestling over here from some friends and just start putting it together. Because the reason I know him is because I used to train at Gold Corps way back in the day. So for people who don't know, Gold Corps is where Ronda Rousey, Carl Parisian, uh, Manville, Garumbian, that's where they all started. And I was one of the OGs there and (laughs) Savan would come in. Yeah, he and I almost wonder if back then, because it was so impossible to make money off of MMA, they only stayed so long as they could pay tuition and then they had to go somewhere else or they had to stop. So like probably like him, he probably had to just piece MMA together from the little bits and stuff he learned everywhere, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And then, uh, I mean, he, I think he, from what I remember, I think he said he was dra- training with like Joe Charles. I don't know if you... Joe Charles used to also come by Gold Course too yeah. and kind of do the same same thing, right? When he can afford to train, he would come and... So everyone was kind of just going around. And then, so what happened with us is we were just training his, in his gym. And then eventually he kind of like met some connections with somebody else. Uh, some guy named Bo Hirschberger. He was a, a Grace, uh, uh, Hicks and Gracie brown belt at the time. And he was like, come to our gym over here in Torrance so you can train with us. But back then, people don't realize even a brown, brown belt, belt was a yeah. fucking big deal. I remember deal. back then... <laughs> If you were a purple belt, there was like five purple belts in the U.S. at the time. You know, like yeah. you could fight in the UFC and be a jiu-jitsu master as a purple belt because it was that new at that time. Oh, I, I remember like just those first like cage combat fights. And it was like, you're going to fight a black belt. Do ne- ne- never go to the ground. 
dude, never go to the ground. Never go to the ground. And the guy could just have a just regular clothes guard. And it was like, don't go to the ground. For people who don't know, Cage Combat was one of the early, like, I think it was unsanctioned. And it was straight up, like, in people's backyards, right? Yeah, yeah. It was almost like backyard wrestling. Well, they had it in San Pedro. It was like, they had a Dancing Waters in San Pedro. And then they had it, like, it's an entertainment center in downtown. They had it, like, 4 and 4 in, like, Long Beach. Well, no, but didn't they once have it at a backyard? Yeah, they had it in a backyard. I fought one time in a backyard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't that Neutral Grounds? I remember Neutral Grounds did that Yeah, same thing. Neutral Grounds. No, Neutral Grounds. Same guy, yeah. Yeah, they were one of those original promotions where it's like where is this i can't find it like oh it's behind so-and-so's house like yeah. what his name is kaja he was the super nice guy but back then also it's kind of like old school indie concerts where they would do the house show but it would literally be in somebody's living room yeah. and you would do an indie concert that was like how the old school indie mma fights would be where you would be doing it out of somebody's backyard <laughs> And hope the cops don't show up. <laughs> Actually, the cops would show up, and I think they would kind of just talk to him, and the cops would just be like, "Oh, what's going on over here?" They'd just be like more interested, and then then actually wanting to close it down. But because it was so new, the cops probably didn't know: is this legal? Is it not? I don't understand what the rules are yet. For them, it was kind of like, "Oh, can we just check it out?" Like they were just kind of looking on curiosity. Yeah, curiosity. So you started training with Savon, and then you were just training out of his house, and then what happened? Yeah, and then we went. Out to a place called 228 Street in like Torrance area. And then Torrance, you know, the guy Bo was like the jiu-jitsu instructor. And then um, and there was a couple, uh, there was a guy named Rich that do the boxing. So they kind of, that was kind of like the first formulation of like a team. You know, then, you know, we had guys that were doing stand-up, wrestling, jiu-jitsu. So now it became incorporated where it was like, you know, I didn't learn just one, one thing at a time. I never learned with the gi first. You know, it was it was kind of like I learned the whole like we're going to do a little bit of boxing today. We're doing wrestling the next day. We're doing jujitsu today. And then we'll kind of all incorporate it when we start. You guys are just figuring it out. Yeah. But, you know, we had like a lot of guys that had experience in, in jujitsu because he was a brown belt and, you know, he's already a black belt. And then Rich was an accomplished like boxer, boxing coach. So, and then, you know, Antonio was, you know, Antonio McKee was also training there. Some guy named Maverick, which probably no one even knows who he is, but he was like big time in like San Pedro. And then we had like a lot of other fighters that were coming in and out and it became like a, like a team, you know, 228 team. And, and we would start going fighting at cage combat. And um, even though those little shows were just so little back then, it was a lot of, a lot of people that who are in the game now that are, that are like influential in the game now, like Chuck Liddell. Chuck Liddell's training under Antonio McKee right now. Yeah. It's random, right? <laughs> but so you were basically coming up as the SoCal MMA scene was starting. So you kind of were part of that whole Genesis group. Yeah. I mean, there were people doing it obviously before me because there was, you know, kind of popped in, but it was still the early stages, you know, um, there was still no, no sanctioning body. The sanctioning body was, you know, the promoter being like, Hey, what weight, what weight are you at? Okay. This guy is pretty similar to your weight. You know, you don't even know the guy weighed in at three o'clock. You're weighing in at eight o'clock. There was no unified rules. And, um, you know, it was supposed to be closed fist, but some guys making a, you know, a hand agreement that they're going to do, you know, closed fist. It was just a lot of things going on at that time, which was, you know, obviously wouldn't fly now with camo. I remember back then because I was training, I never wanted to fight MMA, but I always enjoyed it. And I was also writing about MMA back then. And I remember I would have access to the locker room. And also, I actually, believe it or not, even before I ever started training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I kind of started backwards like you, where I started MMA type stuff first. I had already cornered three MMA fights <laughs> before I ever even took a Jiu-Jitsu class. Yeah. But 
I remember back then in the locker room, there would be guys fighting and they didn't even know how to wrap their hands. Oh, yeah. Some yeah. people wore gloves. Some people didn't. Some people didn't even have mouth guards. Some people didn't even have trainers there. Yeah. Some people didn't have cups or they'd be fighting in basketball shorts. But the craziest shit was some people didn't have mouth guards and they would use Paper towels. Do you know about this? Oh, no. But you know about the, the, know, the paper towel system, yeah. right? Because you need a mouthpiece. So for people who don't know, the real cheap ghetto way is you just get a bunch of paper towels and then you just kind of mold it around your mouth and you just fight like that. It was funny because at that time it was like, you know, there was no like, there was no cut man. There was no group. Like, I mean, the second guy I fought in cage combat, the first guy had a kind of like wrestling background. But the second guy, from what I heard, he was just, a, a, um, he was just from the docks. He was just like some tough guy from the docks. Oh, because a lot of times back then it was just street fighters. <laughs> like street fighters from the docks. And supposedly he was like a tough time street fighter. So then I was like, okay, yeah, I'll fight him, you know? And so that was an era where you could be a, such a good street fighter yeah. that you could be well known. MMA pretty much destroyed that. But <laughs> yeah. back in the day, if you were a good bare knuckle fighter on the street, you were known. Yeah, and you were tough. You, yeah, you could shake off a little like a shot, a shot and, and the guy's just like gets up, the wrestler gets up all frantic. You pretty much have a shot. <laughs> and those guys, I don't even think understood what MMA was. They thought they were just getting into a bare knuckle boxing match or something. And they're like, what the fuck is this? Why are we going to the ground, bro? Let me up. Because I remember back then they would say, let me up. Yeah, let, let me up. Because they were yeah, so yeah, confused. They were, yeah. They, I, I, remember, I remember when I was fighting him, I was like, where's he train at? You know, because, you know, when you when you get a fight, you get nervous. Oh, like you want to know everything about the guy. You're like, where, where does he train at? You know, what what, is, what belt is he? Does he do jiu-jitsu? Does does he did he wrestle? And I was like, oh man, from what I heard, man, he wrestled. But I heard he's just a street fighter from the docks. We're here in like long, in like San Pedro. So you just go around talking to different longshoremen. Like, have you heard of this guy? <laughs> yeah, but because you never know, these promoters are trying to like get you fights, and they always tell you what they what you want to hear. They don't tell you like, oh man, this guy, you know. And the footage of them on YouTube wasn't there yet. No, no YouTube, nothing. So it was like you never, you never knew what they were unless you went to like another cage combat fight and you happened to see them. You know? Wait, were you even getting paid then at that point? At the beginning? At the beginning? Yeah, I think like $50. You started not even thinking this was going to be something that you can make a living off of. No, it was kind of like a progression, kind of like um, people always ask me what I do. It's kind of like, you know, like kind of like CrossFit, those people kind of work out and then all of a sudden they're doing competitions yeah. it kind of just grew into that it was kind of like what's the next step you know i'm learning all these different moves you know is it for self-defense or is it for me to for for sport so at first you just liked it yeah at first i just liked it even the fighting and getting punched and all that shit yeah i mean i liked that that i was learning new things you know obviously getting punched in the face was uh, you know it was new to me how much of it was a continuation of the athletic life i think it was huge because it's always since i was a little kid i always you know, was participating in sports regardless, you know, through the summer, you know, so I always wanted to be involved in something, you know, and then I think that was kind of something that like I gravitated towards and then I, it was something that I can keep on doing and keep on learning because, you know, you study the, the martial arts and it's something you, you always keep on learning new things, no matter if you've been doing it for 15 years or 20 years, it seems like there's always a new style that evolves that you can learn more from it. And I think that was kind of like what like drew me into it. Were those fights even being recorded yet? Like, was it showing up on SureDog and stuff? No. Or just some of them? There, there was like four fights that I had that were not on SureDog. And I was like, 2006, when we, when we had our first fight that was first sanctioned fight, the guy was like, oh, here's your record. And I was like, oh, man, I'm missing some fights. He's like, oh, well, these are the only ones we're going to count right now. So we're, from here on out, this is like the record, you know? So it was like some, the first fight on SureDog was a, a gladiator challenge. That was what number fight? 2004. That was my, that should have been my fifth fight. And here's the thing, guys. 
<laughs> this isn't even an official record. Sure Dog was a site created by a fan. Yeah. And he was just yeah. kind of putting together the fight record for people. And this is now what people still use, even though the majority of the fights on there in the beginning years were unsanctioned. And somebody just said, this is what happens. So you're, a lot of it is just based on uh, somebody called it in and said, hey, this is what happened. There, you know, a lot of those fights, you don't know what really happened. And there's a lot of fights that didn't get recorded. So a lot of the older fighters, their record is not official record. It's just a bunch of fans put it together. It's whatever Jeff Sherwood says. I thought this is what happened. This is what the promoter told me. He's like, well, no, that's not what happened. I lost my cut. It says TKO. I don't think so. And then you just have to go with what he said. Because some of those fights, they might be not even real MMA, like closed fist, or not even allow certain moves, and it would just show up on there. Because technically, somebody like Boss Rudin only has three MMA fights. Oh, they're all pancreation, right? Yeah, yeah, because to be technically MMA, you have to have closed fist fights. I mean, he's still a legend, but under today's rules, those early fights that show up on his record wouldn't count because it was a different combat sport. It was like, you wouldn't count kickboxing. Pancration was MMA adjacent, but it still wasn't MMA yet. But I have some Pancration fights that are on Sure Dogs. That's what I'm saying. Don't count anything. <laughs> you know, one of, the, uh, one of my friends was like, you got to call them and tell them that you fought that day and give them the thing. And I was like, were you self-reported back then? No, they, they, record? People, people, people were self-reporting because <laughs> they wanted to pat the records, you know? I won. Even Maybe you lost, but you called it in and said you won. So I was like, oh, no, nah, it's fine, dude. I'm not going to email them or anything you know no there's people i know their kickboxing fights are on there as mma fights yeah i believe it because i'm i'm just like for me i was like uh you know because i didn't think it was going to be something that i was going to do for a career wise you know i just thought i was just doing fights you know because it was fun but you know people were actually like later as we got later in the career they were like no i gotta have this record to be in the wec or i gotta have this record to fight on to have to be you know it's just it became such a like it became something more of like they wanted to have the record look like they were had more fights than they did but, you know, some of my fights on there, there are some of them that are on cage combat that were not close fist. And there were some that probably could have gone on there. But, I mean, a fight's a fight. You know, if you tell a, a person from the street to get another fight on, on the street with some other guy on the street and you tell them, like, oh, you know what? You could do everything, but just you can't close your fist. Like, I'm sure two people will still be, consider that a fight. <laughs> They'll figure out a way to hurt each other. So at what point did you realize, oh, okay, I could make money or possibly a career out of this? Or did you never think that this could be a career? Not until a little bit later, um, after I had a few fights. You know, my first fight was in 2000, I think it was 2004, when I started uh, Gladiator Challenge. And on that card, you know, my first fight was actually supposed to be against Uriah Faber. Oh, shit. Yeah, so I remember they told me that guy, because that guy, Bo, was a super nice guy. He just showed me so much. But, you know, he wasn't like a manager, you know, he was trying to be a manager, but, you know, he didn't know anything about the people up there. So they just called him from KCOM. Oh, you have a fighter. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, this this one guy just has two fights. And oh, he's like, oh, OK, perfect. We have this guy that has like no fights because, you know, he didn't want to say he had fights. And um, he's like, oh, he's just a wrestler. And he was a wrestler from UC Davis. He's a coach there. And that's when it, it didn't click until I got up up there where they took me off. I was supposed to fight him, but they took me off to fight some other guy named Nick Ertle. And he was a purple belt. And I was like, fuck, why are you going to put me against a purple belt? That's <laughs> like you said. I was like, why the yeah, I remember Nick Erdl. Yeah. I was like, why the fuck are they going to put me with a purple belt? And then they didn't even weigh me in because Nick Erdl was a big guy. He was like 155 or he fought at 155, probably cutting down. And, you know, me, I was just kind of walking around like 145. And um, so it took me off. He ended up, you know, uh, Uriah ended up fighting for the belt. And then I ended up fighting him. 
But on that card, there was like, you know, Rashad Evans was on that card. There was a lot of people on that card. And we were probably fighting for, you know, what, 500 bucks probably? I don't know. And this was still at the reservations? There was a reservation. It was up in like almost close to San, uh, San Francisco area or Sacramento area. Because I remember we went up to Sacramento. But I mean, again, like us going up there, paying at a paying like they give us a hotel. But other than that, you know, you get that little chump change and that's it. I remember one of the earlier fights was Tachi Palace fighting championships. Oh, yeah. Those guys, that was up north. That's what, what I remember. They got some notoriety down the line for having flyweights. And that's when Ian McCall was able to oh, yeah, Ian, gain yeah. some fights. Yeah. And I remember back in the day, Uriah Faber, when he was just getting there, he still looked really young. So when he was walking around backstage, I was like, who's this kid? No, man. I mean, the same thing with uh, when we got up there, the, um, one of one of the guys commented behind us. He's like, oh, man, he's going to get his ass beat, you know, because he's, he's a small guy. He looks, you know, kind of like, you know, a surfer kid. But dude, when I saw him in the ring, I was like, Jesus, this dude is like an animal. A lot of people fought him from from Southern California. You know, uh, some guy named Jay Valencia, some guy. Yeah. A lot of different guys fought him because they thought like, man, I'm going to submit this guy yeah. or I'm going to stand with this guy. But it never worked out. You know, they always yeah. he found a way to win. He was like owning the California uh, MMA scene for a while. But wasn't it back then, especially if you were below 170, was it hard to find a lot of fights because a lot of the fighters were bigger? Back then, I think it was just because no one wants to cut down to 145 and there was no 145 weight class. So you were fighting a lot of bigger guys often? Yeah. So it was like you had to fight at 155. Like if you're going to fight, you have to fight at 155. And that was kind of like the lowest weight class. But I think even back then, the USC didn't even have the 155, right? No, they had it. They didn't have it. They had it. They got rid of it. Yeah. And then they brought it back later. It was always an odd transition because initially they had Jens Pulver ruling oh, the weight yeah, class yeah. and then they weren't sure what they were going to do until BJ Penn came along. And when Jens beat him the first time and then he got into a contract dispute because he said, well, Shudo is going to offer me X amount. UFC said take a hike. And that was it. He left and that division was gone. And if I recall correctly, BJ and Kal Uno fought for the vacant title. It was a draw. And then they just said, fuck this whole thing. Yeah. No more, <laughs> no more 155. But that still hasn't changed the fighters having contract disputes with the UFC. Even from the beginning to today, that's still going on. Like I was saying, like it was hard to find fights. You know, it was, you know, you're, you had to get your manager to find you fights that were going to be, you know, equivalent to your, you know, if you want to move up the ladder and you want to be winning, you had to have a good manager at that time. So even back then, managers had appeared. No, there was no managers. It was just kind of like your gym, your gym trainer. Somebody just acted as your manager. Yeah, acted as your manager. And then, and then I kind of made a switch to over there, like the body shop and subfighter uh, with Antonio and, and uh, Tracy Hess. And that, that was kind of where I first started kind of like kind of taking it serious. Like, hey, this is something I want to do a little bit longer than, than, I, than I anticipated. And back then, Gladiator Challenge was one of the bigger name yeah. organizations. Gladiator right? Challenge, like King of the Cage, like in Saboba. Tehachapi Palace was pretty big. Did the pay increase that much more from like the backyard fights you were doing to Gladiator Challenge? Was there a big pay bump or it was just like getting paid from 50 bucks to 500 or something? No, but I think when it got legalized, like I think in 2006, I think the pay increased not a lot, but slightly, you know, I think from instead of making like 500 bucks, you probably make like a thousand dollars for the fight. And, you know, for somebody, you know, I was in college, wasn't working a regular t regular job thousand dollars can get you by pretty far you know but you got to minus whatever the 20 percent for your training fee you know since you're training at that gym for free like when i was training i lived in eagle rock which is 
all the way down over here in the northeast part of like Los Angeles. And then I was driving all the way out to Bellflower, Long Beach area to train. So it was a mission. And that was because they were like, oh, why are you training so far? It was because that was the group that was like my manager, the train, the people that were like training me. And also like I was training, I was training for free. It's it's hard, you know, back then, like you said, like we were saying in the beginning, uh, I think it was before the podcast, like people always just kind of just popped in and popped out where they can get in, where they can train for free because it's, it's expensive. I mean, what does it cost to go train at just a gym nowadays? If you're training unlimited, it's going to be for sure over 200 bucks. Yeah. So there was no unlimited tag back then. It was just like, you know, it was just, you're going to go train at this gym. and. But don't you feel like because people were getting paid so little, that's why everybody in the SoCal fight scene were so tight-knit because they forced them because they couldn't afford to train everywhere, that they had to become friends with each other so they could have more sparring partners? Uh, that could probably be a possibility. But then it kind of like shot you on the foot because everyone knew who, like you're kind of like when you went to go fight, they'd be like, oh, I've trained with that guy before. Because it's like you said, it's a closeness circle. So people would be like, hey, Albert, he's like, oh, I'm fighting this guy. Have you, have you trained with him before? It's like, oh, yeah, I've trained with them before. So then you're like, oh, shoot there's two guys that I've trained with before are fighting each other. And then you just like, you hope that the guy that you're training with the more and more is going to win. But you already know what happens in that kind of sense. It's, you know, anything can happen in those kind of fights. I remember if you look at the early gyms, like go course, I was cleaning out my storage unit the other day. And then I had the original go course signup sheet where he gives you the classes, the breakdowns, the pricing. Do you know how much unlimited pricing was? So back in 2005, if you want to take unlimited classes at GoCourse, it was 80 a month. <laughs> 80 a month. It was 80 a month. Now those, that's unheard of. It's not even get you one day a week. The price increase now isn't even inflation. It's way above inflation. Yeah. But that goes to another question I have for you is, back then, then, when you were fighting, did you ever get gypped by promoters where they didn't pay you when they were supposed to? Or I, I, was, I was very fortunate um, where I didn't get gypped, but I had a lot of friends that did get gypped, you know? Um, some of them would just fly out to like, you know, Oakland and they did a fight and then they were like the promoter didn't have any money or the checks bounced or, or it didn't get, you know, because at that time there was no like sanctioning body. So there was no one to check the checks and balances of a, of a promotion. And, uh, um, people got gypped, of course, a, a lot of times back then, you know, sometimes promoters, promoters would always complain that they weren't making any money, but yet they were throwing, they were throwing shows like every other month. So it, it didn't ever, it never made sense to anybody. Like, why are you, not, if you're not making money, then why are you having so many shows? And back then, even today, now they still do it. Like a lot of fighters have to sell tickets. And that was like the biggest stress, you know, when you were fighting. It was oh yeah. Like, a lot of your payback that was based on you had to sell your own tickets and you got a commission off of that. Right? Yeah. And some guys were huge, like selling tickets, you know, like Nam Fam. I remember the first time I went to go watch him fight. Oh, he was like one of the early social media guys. Man, when I went to go watch him fight over there in Saboba, he probably had like 800 fans. Like it was huge. He was like on the paper in Westminster. And I was like, man, this guy's like a legend out here. Well, because back then I was writing about MMA and he knew every local MMA writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knew how to get his name out there. Yeah, he, he was smart. I mean, and then that equates to money because you get a certain percentage of each of each ticket you sell yeah he was one of the first guys that took advantage of a viral clip where he fought a dude and then he just wailed on him until he was out unconscious there was no ref to speak of so that got stopped way too late i think if you still look up <laughs> nam fam on youtube 
it's one of the early things that come up along with his fight with Razor Rob McCulloch. Oh, yeah, Razor Rob. That's yeah, cool. and Nathan was always one of those guys. He was always, I think, on the wrong end of certain decisions. So it's one of those things, his fight with Leonard Garcia. I thought he won that, and then he never got to chance to run it back. You know, I got to spar with them, you know, because I, I used to train a sub-fighter, and there was another sub-fighter in, like, Laguna Niguel. Dude, he has a lot of power behind his punches, and, you know, and he's, and he's a tough, tough guy. So I remember, like, watching him fight, and then he would do, like, the body punches and everything, and it, that's just his demeanor. They're like, oh, he gets hit. You know, I was like, yeah, but he's taking some de- he's taking some hits, but he's giving them, too, because it, his fights were always exciting. When I, when I would always watch him, and especially the, King, uh, the Saboba days or the King of the Cage days, he was just out there like fireworks, man. He was just coming out there just like guns a-blazing. <laughs> a lot of these gyms that you're mentioning, though, it shows you how tough the MMA business is because a lot of them aren't around anymore. They <laughs> went out of business. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. tough, dude. To make money off of fighters, you know, it's, it's, it's a really tough game. You know, like how much, how much money can a fighter make for you in a short period of time and which one's really going to pan out and which one's really going to make it to the UFC? You know, out of all the people that I was training with, you know, only a, a certain fraction make it to the UFC and make that money. And even at the UFC level, which one of them is actually surviving where it's like a comfortable living for you and your trainers? It's really tough. Like, um, you know, someone's always asking like, oh, how much you make? Did you make you make a lot of money? And I was like, no, you didn't make that much money. I mean, I was kind of fortunate, like I would kind of save it. But just like every, most of the other fighters that were coming up, I was living with my mom, you know, like. But were you a lot better at saving than other fighters you knew? Uh, I think I was. I mean, you know, like I would, most of my money was spent on training, you know, and I was kind of fortunate back then there was no like strength and conditioning coaches. There was no like whole food, yeah, nutrition, whole foods. I was, you know, I wasn't eating like, oh, you got to eat your like keto diet. So I only got to get like my kale salad with this. <laughs> I was just eating like, like everybody else, like going to Ralph's, grabbing like the frozen 50 drumsticks and like eating like, <laughs> eating like my chicken eating the chicken with like, you know, no carbs, like yam and barbecue sauce. That was like a popular yeah, yeah. one. Remember I, know, I, would, I would do, I would do cans of tuna with like barbecue sauce on top. Yeah. That was another one, but it was like always like barbecue sauce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it would kind of drain out the, the taste. And then it was like, when I was cutting that day, it was like, I'm gonna need half a protein bar in the morning. <laughs> oh, God. And then I'm gonna eat like another half before I weigh in. It was and like, it just felt like hell. Yeah. I felt like hell. And there was, I had no nutritional like knowledge back then. Not like now. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what the stress would be on a, on a kid now that's coming up because, you know, mo- social media, you see everyone has their strength and conditioning coach. You see everyone's on this, like this meal plan diets. So a lot of the fighters now, even before they're making money, they're investing so much of their own money or borrowing money to put into their fighting career or their parents money. or hustling to get sponsors or, or else they're hustling out there. Like, Hey man, like when I fight, I'm going to put you on my, on my thing. I'm going to shout you out on Facebook. You know, everyone's hustling. It's like, a, you know, it's a hustle. You have to be entrepreneur. You have to be able to like, you know, be be on social media and getting their name out there or else it doesn't, it's not worth it for the people that are, that are sponsoring you. Yeah. Speaking of which, I know, bring it back to me, FM, he was the first fighter that Budo Videos sponsored oh, yeah, Budo back Videos, in the day. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were coming up with sponsorship, even a possibility, was it something that you were able to take advantage of? Uh, me in the beginning part? No. Like when I was doing the cage combat and stuff like that, I remember, um, I don't know if you guys remember Hitman. Oh clothing. yeah, Hitman fight gear. Hitman, yeah. Hitman fight gear. Yeah, I had their gear. So I remember one of my first fights. It was it was uh, in um, in downtown entertainment center. I was wearing some like Antonio McKee's like uh, bad boy shorts and like bad boy shorts was like the you know like 
that crazy looking face, you know? Yeah, on your ass. On your ass, yeah. Because everyone wore, everyone back then didn't, everyone wore board shorts, like real board shorts, like, like you know, Billabong or something. Like Rip or, Curl O'Neal. Rip Curl O'Neal with like, with the zippers, you know? And then, and then they were, you wore those like Valetudo shorts that were straight Valetudo. But back then, <laughs> if you got sponsored, that might just mean you got free shorts. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what, what happened. So the guy was like, hey man, He's like, uh, I think it was like, I think it was Hitman Dan. I think it was because yeah. they had like little boots there. He's like, hey man, are you are you fighting? Are you have fight shorts? Are you, are you fighting those shorts? He's like, here, let me, let me give you some shorts. And he gave me some shorts and a shirt. And I was like, and for me, I was like, dude, I'm getting a free shorts and shirt. <laughs> I was like, this is fucking awesome. And you know, I'm, okay, I'll yeah, wear it. You know, and then that's how it kind of like start getting sponsors. There was another guy in the booth like uh, who I met in like Mexico. 40 Thieves was still to this day, he's a good friend of mine. We were in Mexico and I was, because back then too, we would have fights in Mexico. That was when you weren't sure you were going to get paid. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you weren't sure. But that guy was like a, they had a Cage of the Fire. So back then it was like, I got the belt for Cage of the Fire, which is kind of random, but we would fight in Mexico and like in discos. So I met him and we would meet a lot of guys from like San Diego and the guy would be like, hey man, I'll give you some shorts for your fight and shirts. And I was like, man, for me, that was like, the ultimate like you know like i was like oh man i'm getting free gear not even any money exchanging hands well then at what point did you start making money from sponsors or getting paid more from your fights where you felt like okay maybe i could pursue this as a career um i think like when i went over to like to body shop and with tracy hess over there as a fighter i think he, he was very savvy like to this day talking to sponsors and making a name for you as a fighter he was just you know him and Basically, all the sub fighter guys were so good about creating a website and putting like instructional videos to get their name out there so that people would visit the website. And then from there, they could promote their fighters and get the brand out. So he, he would like get fights for you. He'd be like, no, you know, this guy, you're, you're not ready for this. Let me get you this fight right here. This fight looks better for you and kind of start building your record, building your confidence. Uh, and then he'd be like, let me get you, you know, sponsorship with this like clothing line. Let me get you sponsorship with maybe like get, get you some supplements. Well, back then there were so many MMA clothing lines. There's not that many now, but back then everybody thought this was going to be the next big clothing hit. Oh, I know. Everyone wanted to be the next tap out, essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tap out was huge back then. Yeah. Well, they also thought it was going to be like skating culture where there'd be a whole kind of clothing brand associated with it. And I don't know if the sport or the community ever got big enough for that. But so through that, then did you start making from hundreds of dollars to like thousands yeah, like of a dollars? Yeah, like a couple thousand dollars for like each fight. And then I was like, oh, hey, you know, this is like... Was that still under Gladiator Challenge or did you have? Did you uh, there was on? like just local shows, like I think it was like TFA and there was like some other shows, like even in like, if you had a bigger name, they'll give you a little bit more money. And so even in the smaller shows, even the smaller you- shows, they'll give you a little bit more money. If you were able to sell tickets, if you were able to like, you know, be a main event, you know, I fought, in, I fought uh, Alberto Crane in some show in, um, in Ontario. And, you know, that was a local show. Uh, it was called called, I think it was called called out. I'm not too sure what it was called, but. Even on that one, that was the, the you know the main event, and you know I know Alberto got paying got pretty decent for a local show, and I did I got paid pretty decent for a local show. So, um, you know that's where I was kind of like you know this could be leading up to like you know the the main goal for everybody else is like to get to the, the WEC Bellator. So at then WEC and Bellator was already existing. Yeah, it was, it was already existing. I think Bellator was just coming up. What about Strike Force? Did it exist? Strike Force existed, yeah, but Strike Force had like a lot more like upper upper weights. And it was like half kickboxing, half MMA or something. Yeah, some of them were doing kickboxing and some of them were doing MMA. So you had your eyes set on that? Yeah, I had my eyes set on like, you know, I wanted to fight the WEC. Okay. I thought like WC was like um, 
well, that was like the only place back then for back smaller then, guys. Yeah. WC, UFC, and then when Bellator came out, Bellator. But back then, UFC didn't even have your division yet, right? They had to buy WEC to get the 145 and 155 division. And 135 too, right? They had it? Yeah. Did, did they have 125? No, they didn't even have 125. No, 125 right? was the inaugural flyweight where they got Demetrius Johnson, Ian McCall, uh, Urishtani from... It was a tournament. Yeah, and then uh, Joseph Benavides. So those four guys started the flyweight. And then everyone knows it was Mighty Mouse versus Ian McCall. And then they had that sudden death that never happened. And then Urishtani and Benavides fought. And then Benavides knocked him out. And speaking of which, did... It ever crossed your mind to possibly fight overseas? Because I know in, in Asia, especially Shudo and Pancras, they had a lot of the lower weight classes. No, yeah, of course. I mean, Shudo was, there was actually sometimes uh, people would like text out like, hey, man, like, do you want to fight in Shudo? And I was like, yeah, let me know. I'll, I'll fight in Shudo. You know, can you get to this weight? But it would always be like a last minute call. And it was like, I think one was to fight. Um, uh, and then he, they were like, oh, can you make it? Cause it's not you can't it's not one thirty it's not one thirty five it's like one thirty three because of the cause the kilo so it was like can you make it can you make it like in, in two weeks and I'm like oh there's no way because you know I'm like walking around and then you got to fly out there and then they would only pay you know Shooter didn't pay a lot either I mean they paid but it's not like it was more for like the prestige to fight in Shooter and yeah like I, I really wanted to fight in Shooter just for that the prestige you know to fight in Japan. But no, I never got the chance to. I mean, the closest thing I got to find in Asia was uh, in Guam, which was like really random. But uh, in Guam was like kind of like uh, that island itself is like, every, I think like 99% of the people do MMA over there. It seems like it. <laughs> so were you then just training full time at this point and living with your folks or were you also working? For the first part of my career, I was just training full time. I was going to school and then I was just training. And then it was kind of really dependent on like my classes. I was kind of like a nerd. So I was like, if my anatomy class fell in the time where everyone was training, I was like, I'd be just like, fuck, shit, what am I going to do? But Wait, I need what this were anatomy you studying? class. I was studying exercise science. Were you already thinking about going into education at that point? Uh, no, no, I was thinking about doing like physical therapy, occupational therapy. And then, um, so I was doing that. When I was like having classes contradict with like my training schedule, I was just finding every way to train. You know, I was I was signed up for the the the, the club, the jiu-jitsu club at Kelsey Long Beach. I would like go at like ten o'clock at night. Um I had a buddy named Toby Imada. I don't know if yeah, you yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Oh yeah. He was the one who did that reverse triangle on Masvidal and yeah, choked yeah. him out. So dude, he's yeah, so I would train with him like Was, was like, that the first time you started training no gi then? Was that school in the club? training gi yes yeah yeah i'm yeah. sorry he With gave the me gi. they actually gave me my blue belt there <laughs> i remember one time he saw me at a fight he's like don't you fucking forget it i gave you your blue belt <laughs> <laughs> so were you training there because we were actually supposed to fight in a jujitsu match and it didn't happen do you remember that yeah yeah i remember yeah were you training, training out of there cal state long beach yeah so this is where the <laughs> mma in you comes in because yeah. you were i heard you were already calling around to find out hey is this sam guy good how's yeah, yeah. jiu-jitsu what's he good at like scouting it out like yeah, it's an yeah. mma fight i'm just like dude this is a jiu-jitsu match man it's yeah. not that serious because if you called around enough you'd always find somebody that trained with somebody you knew especially in california so you'd always knew somebody who trained with somebody that's actually how then we kind of we hadn't met yet but that's how we first kind of peripherally got to know each other and then from there we actually met and became friends and yeah. stuff and it, it was random that he knew a lot of people that i knew so it was like oh because i was doing the free training too yeah yeah so like like rest in peace but like joe camacho yeah joe camacho and, oh yeah the open mats yeah like him too he was another like guy that i used to train with a lot you know i was kind of piecing together like a lot of places to train at 
and him too, he was like a person that I would always kind of like go train with on a Friday night, you know, let's come train, you know, and he was a California legend too. And crazy story is the day before he died, we both competed at the same, same tournament. And I think we both won or did well, something, I don't know, it doesn't even matter. And then the next day I find out that he died. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was like, actually like, it was, it was one of the guys that had like, you know, like you said, like kind of like Nam Fam, he was really like you know out in public always talking about him you know the fighting and getting sponsors and he got me like a like a watch sponsor one time that i'm like jesus man like so generous so generous yeah and like he was actually my first jujitsu teacher because when i was training at go cars i was training mma and judo and just no gi catch wrestling yeah but with (laughs) catch wrestling yeah remember (laughs) yeah Yeah, so people don't know but yeah yeah. i trained with go and this guy named gene labelle who are just old school catch wrestling guys so before jujitsu i was in catch wrestling and it's one of the few schools, maybe the only school where it has a legitimate catch wrestling pedigree. But back then, people don't know that there was this anti-jujitsu movement. That's why a lot of those guys like Joe Charles, Savon Young, they would come to go course because they didn't want to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu because there was that, remember that rivalry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that anti-jujitsu rivalry where they wanted to learn grappling, but they didn't want to learn it from the Gracies because I think because of the MMA circuit or whatever. So a lot of those guys would come through. When you say Joe Charles, are you talking about ghetto Joe Charles, yeah. the big black yeah, yeah, dude, yeah, the one who fought uh, yeah, yeah. Vitor Belfort, right? Yeah. And Vitor oh, Armbardem. Vitor yeah, yeah, Vitor Armbardem. They oh. had accusations that it was a work because oh, he threw okay. no strikes, now, now just took him down yeah, and then he just armbarred him. They're like, that was really quick. But also <laughs> because Joe Charles actually did okay on the ground and they also thought that was like weird, but it was because he was training with go-cores when he could and so forth. Random fact, I don't know, maybe you guys know this, but Joe Camacho, I think, was the first fighter to be sponsored by Von Dutch. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was my first jiu-jitsu teacher because I was training catch wrestling, and I thought grappling was grappling. And then here's the crazy thing. Even though everybody's like grappling is grappling and all these guys are good, the thing about the other grappling systems like sambo and judo and catch wrestling is we didn't have guard and we didn't have guard passing. So I think (laughs) Joe was the first guy who showed me like how to pass a guard. How I met Joe, because I did a, um, you know, I had a little bit of training, you know, with like, you know, at 228th Street. And and then I was like, I looked up on the internet, where's the jiu-jitsu tournament at? And the only jiu-jitsu tournament was at at, uh, Next Generation, which was like all the way down, like New Miguel. Yeah, Chris Brennan, Chris Brennan, which back then he was like one of the first schools. He was the OG guy who started Nogi. Yeah, the Nogi. So all dude, back then, if you trained only no gi and you taught no gi you got death threats back then <laughs> yeah so he was like a no no gi instructor so i went down there and i drove all the way down to new york from over here and, and i was like and i get up there and they're like oh hey you know like you're 147 do you want to do 145 and i was like oh nah it's cool whatever i'll just do the whatever featherweight or lightweight and lightweight was back then there was no beginner novice it was just this weight class, this weight class, and this weight class above whatever, above 170. It was 170 to 185. But like in that tournament, it was like Ian McCall was in that tournament. Antonio McKee was in that tournament. That's why I went down there. Like, And back then, tournaments, now they're like held in the Irvine, you know, Brand Events Center or like the Long Beach Pyramid. They're held in these gigantic sporting events places. But back then, even jujitsu tournaments were just held at somebody's school. Yeah, it was in, it was it was literally in the gym. And I remember even like what my first match was against Joe Camacho, and he was like a pro belt, and he's like, oh, he's asking me questions, like, oh, where do you train at? And I was like, oh, I train over here. And like he, I knew he knew it was like, oh, this guy's just like 
doesn't know much, you know? And like, uh, so after the match, he got me in a Kimura, like, I don't know how long into it, but it was mostly like wrestlers. I don't know, remember Jason Mayhem? Back then, that was the crazy thing. Cause even me back then, if you just competed a lot in the early days, you would end up competing against MMA fighters. Me and Joe started talking and he was just like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I'm from like East LA area. Like you should come train with me. And then that's how it kind of sparked. I got his number and would kind of talk. And then he started just showing me a bunch of stuff, you know, and like started doing jujitsu. And he was like, kind of like, he's like, where do you train? And, and then I was just telling him like, oh, I train over here. And he's like, oh yeah, maybe we could like cross train, man, the cross train. Like yeah, back then everybody <laughs> was cross training to learn. So then when did you get the big call from one of the bigger organizations where you can make more money? Was it WEC first or Bellator? Uh, I think I think the biggest show um, after that was Affliction. Oh, you fought in uh, yeah, Affliction? Yeah, I fought in Affliction. So for people who don't know, Affliction was actually getting big enough to almost compete against the UFC. And then they went bankrupt. And it was associated with the clothing brand, but also it was co-promoted by Donald Trump. People don't know that. And Golden Boy. De La Hoya was doing his like his stuff with the Golden Boy, and then like they had like a lot of press on it, and, and it was a big show. I think the one I fought one was uh, Orlowski versus Fedor. And, oh yeah, that um, was the second one. Yeah, the second one. So I was like, man, this is a huge show, and like for me, that was like, you know, Fedor, which back then was like, oh man, this guy's just like a movie legend, you know? Like one of the guys who helped facilitate that for Trump is the guy that like his lawyer. Yeah, the one who got oh, really? arrested. Yeah, he was the legal advisor for Affliction. Shut so, up, really? Yeah, later on when they were doing all his investigation into Trump's network of businesses. Affliction did come up and it's like, Affliction no, came up. no shit, it went bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> so you had fought on that card. Yeah, so I fought on that card. And, it and was, then they paid you pretty well? They paid me pretty well. And that one's where I, you know, like for that show, I got like a lot of sponsors. And I, I fought a guy from Mexico that it was, I was initially going to fight this guy for the belt in Mexico. And he was like, you know, he had a big name in Mexico. And then, you know, I was fighting down there in Mexico too. So they were like, hey, why don't we just move it up here to this, this, this card? What was your style then? Because you had learned just coming up MMA, not one style first. I think it was weird because I wasn't a wrestler. I wasn't a striker, but I kind of just knew everything at the same time. But I think as it's like, if you look at my career, there were some parts of my career where it looked like this guy just all he wants to do is strike. And then sometimes where I, like, I felt more comfortable wrestling, I would just go in there and just start wrestling. And there's sometimes I would just come over there and start doing jiu-jitsu. It was kind of like wherever I was in my training, I guess, I was kind of like showed in the fight. You know, sometimes I would be up there standing, kickboxing and, and you know, ground and pound and like and just like sprawl and brawl. And then there were some fights where I'm like, dude, this is like, you know, I'm just take, I'm just pressing him to the fence and just trying to take him to the ground. You know how like now people will spend months like strategizing how they're going to fight? And come up with a game plan almost like football plays right yeah the way you fought was more based on feel yeah it was it was based on feel and there was no strategy no game plan going in you kind of just showed up and kind of like jiu-jitsu tournaments when you just show up and you just kind of if the guy's like hitting you a lot striking you got to take it to the ground and you know if the guy's pretty good on the ground you know you caught wind of what they do so it was very simple it was very either, simple yeah. i'm gonna either keep a standing or i'm gonna take it to the ground it wasn't much more complicated than that. No, it wasn't much complicated so than th that. So then what kind of cornering were you getting when you went back? Because I remember back then it was mostly motivational. And then later on, you started <laughs> hearing people give precise things like yeah. slip to the left, counter this, you know, when he drops his left hand, come over with a punch. But back then it was like, you can do it. It's your game now. Yeah, like yeah. stuff like that. Get up, get up. You're like, get up. 
get up get off the fence get <laughs> so how would they be cornering you no i think i think once you started building you know once you already had like about six fights or, or somewhere around there like you start to kind of like the, your trainers know a little bit more about your the guy that you're fighting and then a little bit more about you so they have a little bit of a game plan going in like when i fought alberto crane it was very specific because you know that he wanted to get it to the ground as soon as you kick he's gonna try to take you down we want to you know get get to a get to a butterfly position and get up you know if he takes you to the fence you want to just circle 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 it was very specific you know and uh, it was kind of they brought guys in that were like you know trying to attack my legs or trying to do more jiu-jitsu once it got a little bit a little bit more involved where it's a little bit more higher stakes i guess there was a lot more planning involved of course you know what's funny is i told you i started cornering people and training people actually yeah. because if you were one of the ogs back then like I was one of the OGs at GoCores, then some of the up and coming guys, you would be, you know, beating them in certain ways in the gym and they'd want your help. And then you end up being a trainer. Right. But I was always a nerd and I was one of the more educated people. Like I had gone to college and I had gotten good grades and you didn't even see a lot of that in MMA back then. It was mostly meatheads and <laughs> it was mostly about like just strong dudes and bodybuilder types. Right. So I was trying to like, even back then in the early days, come up with these precise game plans and like think everything out, like, which is very normal for Faraz Zahabi or Greg Jackson to do. Oh yeah. But yeah. I was trying to do that way back then. And nobody was interested in listening to me. They're like, Sam, this is bullshit, man. You just got to go out there and go crazy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. This isn't for me. I'm not. <laughs> fight your game, man. Fight your game. They're always yeah. like, say, fight your game. That was like, everybody used to always say that. Fight your game, yeah, man. Fight your game. You Don't go fight first. his game. Yeah. Fight your game. Fight your game. And I was like, maybe this isn't the sport for me to be a trainer in. Now, I think there's like room for it. Now, everyone knows there's like a lot of strategy involved in it. It's much more scientific now. It's much more scientific. Like, I don't watch MMA as much as I used to, but now, like, certain fights that I'm like, oh, wait, like, I think this might happen, or it might be like, I'm curious, who is going to win that fight? I remember I was trying to do like the dibble dabble where I'm trying to bet on fights. Dude, I would like lose every one of them. No matter how much experience you have, it's like, I would, I would just be like, oh, man, I, I got like two right out of like 12. See, that's where I felt validated. <laughs> I felt validated because people are doing game plans now. And secondly, I would start gambling back then. And then all of the gambling sites I used got shut down the same day the poker sites got shut down. But I was like actually pretty good. At, and I noticed even back then, fighters were really bad at guessing who would win. Yeah. And I was really good at guessing who would win because I would just try to look at it very strategically. But I noticed fighters, when they predicted because they were a fighter, what made them so bad at gambling on fights is because they always picked the fighter who they thought deserved to win. Yeah, Because they true. knew how much effort goes into training. They always picked the guy who they knew were less lazy and worked hard. And it's like, that doesn't matter. Whoever's going to win is going to win. <laughs> if you want a good laugh, go back and watch Phil Baroni cornering Mark Coleman. Oh, oh my God. What that's was that? Famous. Yeah, that's the one where it was like, you a legend, Coleman. You a legend. It's like, that's not advice. Yeah, you're still losing. <laughs> So those Hammer House guys. <laughs> yeah, all the Hammer House guys that kind of corner like that. Well, I know initially when Mark Coleman was cornering Kevin Randleman against Maurice Smith, that was actually pretty helpful because he fought him before and Randleman was a guy that was going around and avenging all of Mark Coleman's losses. Yeah, yeah. But then you could tell when they were fighting new people, they just got emotional and just like, yeah, come on. It was like, that's not advice. And then even now where you can see the progression, like Sam said about how game planning works, the most recent examples I'll use 2018 when GSP fought Michael Bisping in between the second and third round, Freddie Roach told him, as soon as you're done through a hook, he's not defending properly. He can't see out of that eye. 
And what do you know? He caught him with the hook, took him down and choked him. And then in the most recent fight, when Anthony Pettis fought Tony Ferguson, Duke Rufus said, you got to time his kick as soon as he kicks through a punch. As soon as he did that, that's what dropped Tony Ferguson. Now, Pettis wasn't able to take advantage of it as much because Tony kept doing these crazy rolls, like a video game character. Literally, he just kept rolling and rolling. And Pettis like, that's not the protocol I'm used to. And then by then, Tony was recovered and it was too late. But it's one of those things where a good cornerman will catch him. And in between rounds, they'll tell you he's doing so-and-so. Make sure to catch him. And when Rory fought Tyron Woodley, he said, don't let him get comfortable. Keep hitting with the jab. It doesn't have to hurt every time, but just keep throwing it, time it, make sure his rhythm gets off. Yeah, rhythm. Yeah, that's super important. I think that's like the value of having a good corner, man. Like back then, like cage combat days, like I seen some guys go in there with their girlfriend cornering them. But like, you know, yeah, you remember that? Like some random guy, you know, but it, it is a true value to have him because as a fighter, you get that tunnel vision sometimes. You're in there and you like, no matter how how often you train, like for three months, you, you did over the same thing. What he's going to do? You saw videos on him. And maybe you're not catching something. Maybe you can't see from the outside. And, you know, and like, and then your corner will kind of catch it. Like, hey, man, every time you throw a jab, you drop your hand down, you drop your hand. That's why he's catching you. Or every time you go for a shot, you're coming up in his space. So I think those cornermen need to like calm you down, need you to get you to breathe. And then kind of be like, hey, this is what's going on. When you shoot, this is going on. When he's shooting, you should be able to capitalize on when he gets back up, like giving you like specific instructions to do it it makes sense because every other professional sport has a coach or a trainer that's able to tell you and correct certain things if you look at basketball they say this play isn't working this is what we're going to do to adjust if you look at the closest relatives mma has let's say boxing boxing his cornermen who tell you hey every time he does this he tends to drop his hand so go for body body head body body head and then as soon as he drops his hand just go straight for the head but for whatever reason, early MMA didn't have that. They just said, I just want my buddies. I want to feel good. <laughs> like, you go off field. Like, oh, I yeah. feel confident. I feel ready. It's like, you could feel all you want, but if the guy has a better plan than you and he knows what he's doing and you can't adjust on the fly, well, then here we are. So after you fought Affliction, was there a point now you were able to make a living off of MMA? Once I fought Affliction, I was um, like, yeah, I was starting to kind of like make a little bit more of, uh, of a living off of MMA. But then at that time, too, uh, I just got my credential and became a teacher. So it was kind of like one of those things where I came in a, in a crossroad in my life where it was like, hey, you know, am I going to be a teacher or be a fighter? You know, and I tried to juggle both of them at once. And it was tough. It was really hard, you know, because as a teacher, you got to be there from eight to three. And then you got your reports and you got to do with more of the factors of like being a teacher. But, you know, that wasn't that unusual back then for MMA fighters to also be teachers. That was kind of common. Rich Franklin was a champion and a teacher. Yeah, I know. I mean, we have a lot of time off. It was always so funny because I always have my fights during like the summertime when we're off, during the wintertime when we're off. So I'm like, oh, okay, give me a fight in, in June. Give me a fight in like July when I was off because I knew I had like time to prepare, time to be off, time where I wouldn't have to worry about anything. And it was good because as a teacher, you had three months off for the summer. You had a month off for the winter. So it was kind of something where it was easy to juggle when you had fights. But then the training was always a, a mission when you, you know, because it seems like everyone's fight training is always in the middle of the day. It's like no one has fight training at eight o'clock at night. You know, it's like it seems like everyone has fight training at like 11 or 12. So like all the professional athletes always train during the middle of the day. Because they're not working. Because they're not working. Yeah, because they're not working. So was there a point then where you felt like I want to pursue this? 
And maybe eventually I'll have to stop teaching. Or did you always think this is something I'm going to do on the side, but I don't know if I can make this a realistic career? Um, no, actually, there was a part of me that wanted to stop teaching because I just started teaching and I was like, you know what? Hey, like, let me just stop teaching and let's see how far I can go with MMA because I could always come back to teaching. I, my degree is not going to go away anywhere, you know? So it's like I spent so, so long, like hustling, not working, you know, not having money, training all these odd times and odd places, and then finally getting a job. And at the same time, my career is actually, I'm having some success in my career with MMA. So it was kind of like a, a fork in the road, you know, it was kind of like, where should I do? And, and a part of me, like when I would have that time off for the summer, I was like, dude, I could do this. I could be off, not working, training, focusing on MMA instead of dealing with like, what a kid told me during the day or what well, reports I have to do. So it was kind of like, but you know, I, I never pulled the trigger, you know, I, I always kind of just stuck with teaching and, and managed the way to like teach and then fight because at the end of part of my career, it was kind of like, I wasn't rushing to get a fight because I didn't need the money. Cause I was, I was still with my mom and I was teaching. I was getting, but your career was still progressing because you went from affliction to Bellator. Right? Yeah. So you were now fighting in these bigger organizations, but I was teaching so I, I really didn't have to like, like, you know, people were like, oh, want to fight this local show for this much money? I was like, nah, you know, I don't, I don't really need to do it. I don't, I'm not really like dying for the money because I still was teaching, you know, and now I, was, I kind of was like thinking of more of the career, you know, people don't get it. People that don't fight don't understand that it's a career that like people are like, oh, that guy's fighting a bum or this and that. I was like, dude, it's, it's, you don't know. It's not your career, man. Like you, like people were like, uh, we had an argument, some guy at work was like, Man, Mayweather ain't fighting nobody, man. Mayweather ain't fighting nobody. I'm like, dude, he could do whatever he wants. He's the fighter. That's his own person. He's his career. If you know, if he's not making any money and he, and he's not and 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 he wants to fight somebody else that's stronger or faster or whoever he wants to fight, but he gets to dictate where he wants to fight because he earned it. Before Mayweather was Mayweather, he he fought all those amateur fights. He fought hundreds of fights, man. He's been training since he was like four years old. And, you know, he was a uh, what, silver medalist or something like that? Bronze. Bronze medalist. You know, you don't get there by just not fighting nobody. And it's also arguable that the guy he lost to in order to advance, yeah, it was a controversial, controversial call. Lot, but then yeah. he just went with it because right after he got offered a professional contract. Yeah. And then it's always funny when people say Mayweather always fights these small dudes. But then says outside of Pacquiao, the last 20 opponents have all been his size or bigger. So how can you say he's been fighting nothing but small guys? So then what happened? Because as far as MMA goes, you kind of retired early. Yeah, I, I did. I, I kind of retired early just because I think when I lost in Bellator. How many fights in Bellator? Did I you only have? had that one fight. It was like a, um, it was supposed to be a fight to be in this like tournament. And who was your opponent? It was, his name was Nick Malmanis. He ended up fighting in the tournament. And he's still fighting. He's still fighting. Yeah. There's a lot of guys that still fight, are still fighting to the day, but. I remember people would be like, oh, you're doing that? Like, is that your, is that your job? Is that your career? I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm a teacher. So I, that's when I kind of made the switch from, instead of being a fighter, uh, back then I, was, I identified myself as a teacher. And I, even though I was fighting on like, you know, Bellator and like people at my work probably were like, oh, they probably couldn't believe it because I really kind of kept it on a hush-hush at work that I was fighting in these, in these shows. That was kind of a heartbreaker. That one kind of like broke my heart because I trained so hard, I fought, and I, I really thought like I was going to win that fight, and I probably had opportunities to, and then he just caught me. And then from there, I had to go to like a local show. And then from from being 
at these other big shows where, you know, you're doing interviews, you're getting treated and, you know, everyone knows who you are to going back to like a local show. I don't care what fighter you are, like it stings. It kind of just, you know, tells you you're like, you're only human, you know? And so when you started going back to the smaller shows, that's when you started looking at your career more realistically? Yeah, like I think when I got down to the, uh, when I had to fight like a smaller show, um, I was just kind of like, ah, you know, there was a lot of talk like, oh, just have a couple more fights and you get back up there. But then in my, in my head, I was like, you know, I think I was like 32. I was just like, you know what, man? Like, I, I don't know if I need to be investing this much of my life into this, something that like, I'm not going to be the champion. Like, you know, like I, like I saw like what a champion looks like. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I trained hard. You know, I, I sacrificed everything, like eating right, making sure I sleep right, making sure like I was doing this oxygen, blood oxygen level thing, like everything, you know, everything was determined on like what, what I was finding. I, I never, I didn't enjoy Thanksgiving, didn't enjoy Christmas, you know, because like, what are you going to do? You have a fight Thanksgiving weekend, but you can't eat Thanksgiving, you know, so it's missing going out partying with my friends, you know, a lot of things that you miss because you're fighting. And then, you know, um, it kind of just got to a point where it was like, you know what? I, I don't think it's worth it. The investment that you put in your body through is not worth the investment of me. Like, uh, keep on fighting in my 30s. I just was like, I saw it. I just sat down and was like, hey, I got a full-time job. Don't have any crazy injuries. Didn't even have any, like, torn ACLs or brain damage or anything. And I felt like that was a good time for me to leave. You know, I didn't make any big fuss about it. You know, I fought my last fight and just was like, I think I told my brother and then like my girlfriend at the time. And I was like, that's my last fight. And they were like, really? really? You don't want to fight anymore? And I was like, nah. It wasn't a hard decision? It wasn't a hard decision. Like, wow. It came naturally. And I think, I don't know. I Part of me was like, I, going into that fight, I didn't think it was going to be my last fight. And I think when I was. Also, you didn't know it was your yeah, last fight. Yeah, I didn't know it was my last fight. But then I think when I was eating afterwards, I was like, you know what? That was my last fight. And I just kind of turned to my like my girlfriend and my, my brother. We were eating and, uh, and I was just like, nah, I think that's my last fight. I'm not going to fight anymore. And that's how I quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in MMA, like you naturally get the itch to be back in there. Yeah. Did you get the itch to be back? Well, of course. Like, I mean, you were looking at guys, you're like, damn, this guy's fighting over here in this show. This guy got, in, this guy got into the WC. This guy's fighting Bellator now. And then I was kind of like, you know what, man, I'm going to just stop. I'm not even going to the gym anymore. So I just like, I think that's when I met you. I was like, I just stopped going to the gym permanently. The MMA gym. The MMA gym. I just kind of like, kind of dibbled and dabbled, kind of just kind of stay in shape. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to turn all my focus to something else. So your competitive drive and athletic drive was still there. Yeah, it was And still that's there. when you switched to jiu-jitsu. Just straight jiu-jitsu, yeah. I, I was like, I made sure I went to a gym where like, no one kind of really knew me. No one knew that I fought MMA. So I wasn't going to get anyone being like, hey, man, why don't you fight MMA anymore? Or why don't you do this? It was kind of like, I just went to complete other side just to do jiu-jitsu like you know some no gi from time to time but like i just i just flipped it over i just was like hey you know i'm just not, i'm not gonna look back i'm not gonna worry about it like but you picked one of the most famous jiu-jitsu gyms cobrinas yeah so all these ufc fighters are always coming in now yeah. but you know even there cobrinas like i came in there and like knowing who i was i mean other than you like all those guys that are like these rising stars in jiu-jitsu, they don't know who like I, and they don't who, care. They don't care who I was. Actually, because a lot of jiu-jitsu guys now back then, people train jiu-jitsu, including myself. I did grappling to learn MMA, but a lot of those guys don't care about MMA. They don't even watch MMA. They just want to be stars in jiu-jitsu. So I remember a lot of it might also come down to timing because Sean Shirk fought in pride, had that one fight. 
and then he realized I can make more money doing local shows where I get a percentage of the tickets. And then he ran into a problem where too many people didn't want to fight him because he had the name of ex-UFC fighter, went five rounds with Matt Hughes. And then he quit altogether and he started a roofing business. But it just so happened that the UFC said, we're thinking of bringing back the lightweight division, but you have to fight GSP first. <laughs> and he says, ooh, that's a terrible deal. <laughs> but if it's a chance to fight for the title afterwards, I'll take it. So it could have just been a timing thing as well. Sometimes certain things don't line up when you want them to. And after the fact, you're like, fuck, why wasn't this there earlier? Like, you look at someone like Daniel Cormier, who's a great wrestler, but he unfortunately came up at around the same time Kale Sanderson did. Oh, yeah. And then he could be probably the <laughs> best live heavyweight, but he just so happens to be fighting at the time of John Jones. So it's very possible without those two guys, Kale Sanderson and John Jones, DC might be considered one of the greatest wrestlers and one of the greatest fighters ever, but just timing, place people around there's a lot of factors that's a good point i mean because once you go back in the lower show they're not gonna let you just fight some just scrub you know so you you really have to kind of like be in a lower show invest a lot of time seeing those kids fight you know like i was kind of one of the first people coming up knowing like a lot you know like the kickboxing everything kind of like hybrid style but you're then now you're at these local shows you're gonna fight these guys that they've been doing it since they were maybe like 15 years old and now they're just as they're just as good as anyone on the UFC level. Some of these guys are just as good. They're, and they're, they have no name. And no fear. When I was in my 20s fighting, I really didn't have any fear. Like, it's funny. People are like, oh, you weren't scared in there? Like, yeah, I was scared. But it was like, I was positive in my mind that I was going to win the fight. Like, this guy has nothing on me. So when I would go into the fight, I would be like, dude, there's no way this guy has quicker hands than me. There's no way this guy's going to take me down. Even though the guy probably did take me down and had quicker hands than me. But you had that, like, that no fear attitude going into the fight. And I think age of 30, you start like, hey, wait a minute. I can get like, this guy can do this to me. This guy can do this to me. You start and the body thinking, doesn't listen anymore <laughs> yeah, like it yeah. used to. You start, you start, you start like thinking how I could lose instead of being like how I could win. It's one of those trade-offs where when you're young, you're fearless and you have more belief in your skills, yeah. even if it's a little bit inflated. But when you're older, you trade that speed for wisdom and experience. So I could just hold you against a cage. I could dig yeah. my head under your, uh, under your chin kind of take some time, stomp your feet, kind of hit you in the knee when you're not expecting it, and then go for a single leg. I think that's what I would do if I were going to fight. Like if they told me like, hey, you're going to fight on Saturday, I'll just duck my head, do a little head bob, and then just, I don't care, I'll even pull guard. <laughs> You'd be fighting smart to not take damage. Yeah, that, take damage, get to like a, a position where I could probably take them down, then get on top and just, you know, w you know, win the fight. So you'd be trying to work and win more safe. Safe, of course. So now that you develop wisdom, there was no part of you that wanted to become a trainer? There, there was. I mean, a part of me, there was like a lot of things that like there was people that, like, you know, I wanted to, you know, continue to like see develop like people that were, you know, were training with and people would be like, oh, come be my corner or come do this. But to then now I'm coaching like football and like track and field and in high school. And so that kind of took up a lot of my focus. And I don't know if I did that purposely because just to take my mind off of what was going on in May. But yeah, I kind of just went from doing one sport to another one. And my, most of my focus went to like, you know, jujitsu and then coaching high school sports. So now do you ever kind of keep in touch with other guys who came up same time you did or who are older than you who are still trying to make it in MMA and they're getting older and just getting beat up where it's just kind of a sad story? Because you were telling me about a 40-year-old friend. That I was in Pasadena, you know, I was going to go to the movies with my, my kids. And, and um, 
And then I, I was kind of just walking the streets and then I um I kind of saw him and I was like, I was like, hey man, what's up? Have you have you been? You know, and he was kind of one guy that would kind of run into time for time with each other um at these like open mats and stuff, you know, and he was just like, Oh, you know, I'm still trying to, you know, still trying to fight. And I'm like, man, dude, I was like, he has to be my age, you know, I'm going to be 40. And he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, um, I'm kind of having a hard, hard, a hard time to get cleared by the state because, you know, I'm going to be 40. And, you know, so I might have to just hit up these Indian reservations. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, man, you know, like, ah, like, you know, me personally, I want to be like, hey, man, you should just gotta, like, stop. But I can't I can't tell somebody that you, you never want to crush anyone's dream. You know, like if that's what you want to do, that's what you got to do. So. I was like, you know, I was like just being real supportive, like, oh man, cool, man. You should hit up the Indian reservations and, you know, get some fights in, get your name out there and see what happens, you know. And like, you know, if nothing nothing happens and you gotta just keep on like, you know, keep on trying, you know, that's all I could say. It almost reminds me of old school pro wrestlers where they maybe one time used to compete in the WWE and then, you know, they fell down or they fell off and they're doing these small local shows and now they're in their forties or older, still trying to make it to the big show. And it's like, I don't know if it's going to happen anymore. <laughs> and so if I even look at your record and look at some of your opponents, a lot of them, maybe your age or even older are still trying to make it into the UFC or Bellator or whatever. Yeah. And it's just, they won't give up. I mean, part of it probably cause they own a gym, you know, they might own a gym. They might, those are the lucky ones. You know, there's a lot of them who are just poor as hell still. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I met a lot of guys when we were coming up that were just like, dude, I got to fight. I need to fight. I mean, being a poor MMA fighter is not that uncommon. No, it's not. It's just like any other sport. I mean, like I, like I said, like I played college sports, playing baseball, football players, all the people in court and that, that had something in common was like everyone was broke. <laughs> everyone, everyone was trying to live this dream to be like a pro baseball player or, or make it to the NFL or 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 make it basketball or whatever it is and everyone's just kind of like living off like whatever the financial grant is or financial aid is and no one has money and everyone's just like you know everyone's living in an apartment with like five other guys that are the baseball team and and no one had money because they're everyone's trying to make it to like you know either play minors and even if you make it to the minors you're only getting paid like a couple hundred dollars a, a month and everyone to make it pro because like you know there's only a like a percentage that's ever going to make it to that to that ufc and it's going to make that money where it's going to be something like life-changing or, or career or, you know something for like you can call a career let's say you had a young cousin or a nephew or somebody and you know they're still a teenager or younger and they wanted to get into mma and one day become a huge star in the ufc would you encourage them or would you be more <laughs> like no man don't do it dude uh I don't know. I think I would encourage them. I would be like, "Hey, you know, train." But then I'd be like a, a good, I'd be a good indicator of like what his potential is. Let's say you saw that he had low potential. Low potential. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Then what would you say? I would be like, "Hey, man, you know, like, hey, you should be doing this for as a sport. You know, take it as you know as as it is. You know, go out there, have fun, get your learning experiences in, see what it takes you. But don't think that you know, don't think that it's going to be like something you're going to do." In the long run, because, you know, I'll give them the speech like I give a lot of high school kids that only that like few percentage in this world are going to make it to that point point where it's going to be something where it's going to be like life changing. But, you know, I wouldn't invest where it comes to a point in time where you're like throw away your your college career or throw away a job that you might have over this, you know. So what would you say? 
Well, <laughs> it's funny that you mention it. There's a documentary I recently saw on Hulu. I think it's called The Fighter. And it was really sad because it was about a gentleman. I'm trying to think of his name at the moment. But so he has a smaller gym out there. And it essentially boiled down to the fact that he is a guy in his late 30s, early 40s. Because he has kids who are in high school and younger. So basically, he's not a good fighter. And <laughs> it's Those stat- are the best documentaries. Because if it's a documentary about GSP, it's kind of boring. Yeah. But if you see somebody struggling to make it when you know they're never going to make it, that's drama. It's heartbreaking because you can see that he's not skilled. But he still goes out there. and. What's his record? Does he show up his record? I don't know his record off the top of my head, but... He was bad. He was bad. He keeps losing. I think anyone who objectively knows fighting is like, this guy doesn't look like he's in shape. He passes out from cutting weight as (laughs) a heavyweight or a light heavyweight. Oh, no. And then he keeps disappointing his family because, one, he's not good, and two, he keeps losing. And eventually, sad. spoiler alert, but it costs him everything. His wife leaves him. Yeah. This sounds like a good documentary. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, coming up, I didn't have no one to, to take care of, you know, except for myself. But you've heard those stories, too, of MMA oh, of guys course, who lost yeah. everything trying to pursue their dreams. Well, whatever. guys are just like, you know, like they, they either quit their jobs or they have family, they have kids. And, you know, they're trying to scratch by by like, you know, paying rent by taking a fight. And, it, and it's tough. Like, I mean, living out of their cars training that's a hard life you know but what about those guys now who are like brain damaged you just talk to them and you know something's off right i always tell my wife i'm like dude if i ever do anything like just real suspicious (laughs) like just acting weird just like blame it on like my past fighting career (laughs) yeah it's called the cage fighter the cage fighter yeah and it's about joe carmen and he risks everything and he loses everything oh god what would you say to that guy what would you if you were his best friend what would you tell him yeah what everyone else in his family has told him. You got to stop. And then <laughs> you're not going to encourage the other podcasts. You were telling Rachel, you got to chase your dreams. And you got to chase up. your dreams and you have to be realistic. <laughs> I think in my head, most fighters know when it's the time to hang it up. I think they just know, right? No, they don't, right? No, they don't. No, they know. don't. You got Tito and Chuck fighting again. Oh, I might do. I know that fight for me. I'm still surprised that they, 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 they cleared that fight to go. I mean, Tito Ortiz is what, 43? Yeah, but they're just getting cleared by CSAC, the state organization here. They don't have to go through all the governing bodies of the UFC. It's much easier to get cleared. And it just pains me to see like t- uh, like Chuck Liddell because coming up, I was like, man, he was such a phenomenal fighter. He was like the first guy that was like sprawling brawl, you know, the guy that was like punching from all angles and and just like, you know, he was just going out there and just and just throwing hands. And I'm like, oh my God, now to see him, like I'm sure you, you guys saw the, like the YouTube clips. I'm like, what if he's playing possum? What if he's just doing that? Because Jason Perillo talks about it. But you know what, though? Even if he wins, because he might still win and knock him out. But it could be one of those things where he knocks him out, but he still looks bad. You're like, he won. But it was kind of like when Tito beat Chael and he submitted him. But then everybody was still complaining. It looked like two old men fighting. Yeah, but he's been training with Antonio, right? And Antonio's pretty like cut and dry. He'll tell him like, hey, man, you're not going to win the fight this way. He's pretty much cut and dry. Yeah, but what if Antonio is getting 20% of a possibly $5 million payday? <laughs> yeah, because he is getting the pay-per-view, right? I heard he's getting And it's cut- a better percentage than he's ever gotten in the UFCs yeah, from what I understand. Yeah, because uh, like, I think Golden Boy was saying, like, oh, yeah. like He has the potential to make more money than he ever did. What was his biggest payday back in 2000? What was it, 2006? Maybe a million. 
Yeah, not even. I don't even think a million. You think well, so? back then when he was fighting to even make a million per fight, that was like unheard of. So I remember Chuck's longtime trainer was John Hackleman. Is there a reason why he's not cornering Chuck? Is it because he says, "Hey, if you fight again, I'm not going to be there," and then he said, "Okay, I'll find somebody who will." Well, the UFC wanted him to retire, right? So maybe. Hackleman wanted him to retire too. Or maybe Chuck felt like he just needed something new. You know, he just needed to get that fire back. You know, sometimes fighters need that, right? They need a new environment. So he went Rocky three, and he's training with Antonio McKee, who's, I guess, in substitute for, what's that gym that Rocky three went to with Apollo Creed? Yeah. He went from the old white trainer to the black trainer. Yeah, that's essentially it. That's the cycle. Like, I'm sure he went to him because Antonio has a lot of gifted wrestlers with him, you know, at his camp. So I'm thinking that Tito Ortiz, that's still going to be his like his go to in the fight is going to go for pressing against the cage. And Aaron Pico is there, too. Right. At Antonio. Uh, yeah, I've seen him train yeah. over there. too. Antonio yeah. and um, AJ, AJ, his AJ son, McKee, his son, then and- Joey, Joey Davis, which is he was a really accomplished wrestler in, uh, in college and in high school. I think I saw a picture of like J- Jesse Juarez, which he was a really good fighter, too. And but there's a lot of guys that go in there that are wrestlers. And Antonio McKee, I know he's old, too, but that guy is just. He's still in great shape. So now we've covered your MMA history. Now that you're working in education and you were a teacher and now you're like an athletic director and working with high school kids. Yeah. What's tougher, MMA and all the training and everything or working with high school kids in LAUSD? <laughs> What's tougher? It's just completely two different things. I mean, MMA, the grind, like, you know, working out is tougher, but like, as in mentally, working with the kids, <clears throat> working with kids in the inner city, because you invest a lot of time with these kids. You try to talk to them about your like knowledge and goes in and you're one out with other, you know, it's like we've had kids that were just like, I'm like, hey, man, listen, dude, go to college. Or even we've had like, for instance, we had a kid that was really gifted in football and he had like, you know, we probably could have got like a little scholarship to one of these schools out here. And we're thinking like, oh, man, it's going to be exciting for him. And first generation a kid from from you know Hispanic heritage. And no, the first thing he says, like, no, I, I don't want to go to college. I, I want to I want to start working. I want to start, you know, I want to start, you know, making money. And, you know, and for me, I was like, man, that's heartbreaking, you know, because it's it's not so much they maybe doesn't want to go to college. It's just the environment he's been put in, you know, like a lot of these people are just like, you know, the parents didn't make money. So now they're young. They're able to get a job in construction or able to get a job, make a little bit of money for their family. And then they just take it right away. You know, no matter if they can go to college, because for them, it's like they go to college. What still they're not going to get a job, you know, after that. But but for the most part, you know, it's rewarding, too, in the fact, you know, you see some kids go to college and make a lot from what come where they come from, you know, so it's it's a lot, you know, like I. I definitely feel like my job is rewarding. You know, uh, I see these kids all playing sports and regardless, like it's the kids that are like either good athletes or not athletes. And I see them, you know, progressing in, uh, in life. And I do, I think I take a lot of like MMA stuff that I took back in the past, like that kind of mindset. And I kind of try to tell the kids, you know, like, Hey man, it's not really about like you being successful. Like when I was a coach in football, I was like, Hey man, it's not really about like winning and losing because at all at the end of it, we're a division three school and we're not playing for millions of dollars. You're not playing for a college, you know, you're not playing for a college scholarship. You're pr- you're, pr- you're pr- pretty much playing for, for yourself. You know, you're playing because you like the sport because you, at one point in time, you were in the playground throwing footballs with your friend in the parking lot. And then you wanted to play for the high school team. And, you know, you should really think of it as that, like you're getting an experience, like 
you're getting like a little bit of brotherhood. You're learning some like up and downs in life. Like shit's not going to go your way. Like, and that's pretty much what like, you know, MMA taught me. You, shit's not going to go your way. Same thing in football, same thing in sports. I thought like some of these kids would be crying because they didn't catch the ball. But I'm like, hey, man, this is the way life works out. Like now it's time for you to get up, uh, figure it out and go back out there and, and either work at it a little bit longer or, you know, just find a way mentally to to overcome that obstacle. The thing about public schools that's fucked up, though, is the funding is all based around property tax. So if you're in a poor area, they have way less funding, right? So you always have kind of dealing with that struggles uh, in the schools. Well, it's kind of weird. Like, I mean, each LUSD school has a kind of the same funding. Oh, okay. But now there's like a, um, now there's like a lot of charter schools that opened up, which is kind oh, of like so a new. Oh, so there's competing. Yeah. So it's like competing. Though it's like it's kind of like a whole new controversy, like in the kind of like education, where there's like these people. They say they're nonprofit, but they're for profit. They're yeah. getting the money from the you know the state of California and and getting building these schools. So, but like a school like ours. You know, most of the kids are from Guatemala, Honduras. And people who don't know, they fled because it's so violent down there and fucking dangerous. Man, I had one kid come to our school. He 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 can't walk. You know, he was, in, he was in a wheelchair. You know, he had a disability. But he told me the story that his dad carried him across the border. They got caught. They had to go back, raise enough money to come back again. And then again... They did it again like four months later and his dad carried him across the border with no wheelchair because he had no wheelchair. Oh, my God. And I'm like, damn, dude, hearing these stories like these are real human stories. These aren't just statistics. Yeah, so they're not statistics. And like. If you ever see me on Facebook, I never put any political things on my Facebook. Nothing. I don't really go off the wall on other people, but everyone's just like talking about like all these political things. But like I, I see it firsthand. Yeah. These kids come with like nothing. You know, these kids come to the school. You know, they're like eighth graders, first time in school, oh <laughs> you know, my like God. ninth graders, first time so in school. So just the odds stacked against them. Yeah, their odds are stacked against them. And But a lot of Americans don't know the reason they're even fleeing is because of shit the American CIA and military <laughs> yeah. and shit did yeah. over there to disrupt their governments and their countries. And that's why they're so fucked up and they have to flee. And then and so they come back over here and it's just like they just seen like war and civil war down there and. They come up here and it's just like, yeah, you're right. Everything's stacked against So it's them. not even poverty that they came from. It's poverty plus war. I have one kid that like we do like this little soccer tournament at school. And then um, he was telling me, I was like, oh, why don't you? I was like, you're good, man. Why don't you play for the soccer team at school? And he was like, oh, I have to work. You know, he has no guardians here. He came over here, lives in an apartment. I think there was a, there was even, it was, on, it was in on the news, not him, but a news of like what that is. He came over here living with friends of a friend in an apartment. He has to pay rent. So he takes a bus from, from the school in downtown all the way to West Covina every day to work because he can get paid under the table over there. Yeah. So you can support yourself. It's just crazy, man. I see those stories all the time. and I'm like, man, it's a whole different life. I'm like, dude, you get up every day. He works seven days a week to go to school. After school, he gets on the bus, goes over there, comes back on the bus. I don't know what time of night. Has to do his homework and then still has to come to school the next day. I think in every metric, as hard as MMA is, that's harder, what those kids are doing. Having to even be carried over here, leaving that country, and then working while trying to go to school and support your family, support yourself, send money back. That's the fucking real grind, man. They're not even trying to follow their passion. They're just trying to live. <laughs> yeah, they're just trying to live. I mean, uh, I saw it on the news one time when I saw that article, when I, when I saw that 
news report about this kid at Belmont and it came out on the news and I was like, man, that's a lot of kids at our school like that. So it's not even like that one kid is no, that unusual. It's, it's a like- lot of kids at that school, you know, they come and they have to survive like that. And, you know, it sucks because like you want to show like a lot of empathy because like, hey, man, like they're not dealing with the same d- deck of cards that you are. You know, I'm over here living at home, eating, eating breakfast. They're coming over here and I don't have to work. My mom at least was able to have provide a, a roof for me. So, you know, these people don't have even that, you know, so and it's tough. That's why I always think like those boxers that come from like those like rural places and like Argentina or Guatemala or Honduras. I'm like, fuck, those guys are motherfucking tough. Like, yeah, you know, like, that's a different kind of tough. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, remember they were saying like about Jose Aldo? Yeah. Like, dude, he just came from like the streets, man. Like the favelas, the favelas, dude. I'm like, man, that's just, that's gangster. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And then he's over here fighting. I'm like, dude, he's not scared of anything, man. Like, you know? So I'm always thinking like, geez, those guys have something else. Like, because there was always a destruction between like, oh man, to be in MMA, you have to be rich. Like, you got to you gotta pay for training. You got to be this. Well, there's that. that other half of MMA too, right? There's all the guys struggling, coming up, living out of their cars. But I almost feel like that's the older generation. A lot of the guys coming up now in jiu-jitsu and MMA they come from like wealthy suburban families too. I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, because they have to pay whatever it is. $2. Yeah, because it's expensive. So it's becoming cost prohibitive. Like like certain high school sports that require a lot of equipment, like hockey or whatever. Not everybody can afford to do that and go to the rink all the time. That's probably another whole conversation in itself. Like, do you think those fighters are actually going to do as well as the fighters that just came from like nothing? I don't know. It's I don't know if gonna... they're going to do as well, but it's a filter. Yeah, that's Meaning true. if it's so expensive to train, you're just filtering out the poor fighters anyway. So they're, they're going to be competing against each other. So it doesn't even matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it's tough. I mean, you see it in everywhere now. I mean, the sponsored fighters from like the favelas that are coming for like jujitsu and some of those guys are just gifted, you know, and they just need that, that support to get them across to that other, other level. Cause imagine they never got the support. No one's ever seen them, never got the training. You, they'll never be there. You know, same thing with like, those fighters that come from Brazil, like, you know, those guys that never got the opportunity, there could be like this world-class fighter out there that never got the opportunity to because he never had the money. Well, back in the day, you could live at the gym and you could basically just clean the gym. They let you live there and let you train and you could pursue your dreams. Now, nobody's going to let you do that anymore. Where's my 300, man? <laughs> it's time for your dues. Yeah. yeah. Not everyone gets to be like a BJ Penn where the dad bankrolls everything and you get to oh, that's train right, right. BJ 24-7. Penn came from, yeah, came from a wealthy family. Even most recently, people don't realize Aaron Pico, I don't know his family situation, but his great-grandfather, grandfather is one of the Pico family, well-known within the oh, LA area. Pico, like out in like uh, 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 ranch, uh, a rancho area? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, him. Pico Rivera area? That's Damn, his that's great-grandfather. Yeah, he went to like St. John Bosco, which yeah, is Yeah, St. John Bosco is yeah, all boys school, Catholic school. So it's one of those things where I'm not saying he comes from money, but he wasn't, or it wasn't too hard on him growing up, but it's one of those things where he was able to get the best training around the world. He wrestled everywhere you could think of. Yeah, I remember he was like wrestling, wrestling like Russia. I mean, he was like the highest like highly touted, like when he was like a junior in high school, and then he just didn't didn't uh, compete a senior year, right? Or something like that. Yeah, you get guys like that, and then you get like the Jose Aldos of the world. So it's kind of, I don't want to say it levels out or equals out, but then all kinds of people gravitate towards MMA for different reasons, whether it's something that they want the challenge of, yeah. or they just say, well, it's a natural progression from wrestling or striking. And for other people, it's just, a way to stay out of trouble like BJ Penn's like you gotta get off this island gotta get you off you're a menace 
I always think like MMA now, it's like a lot of people, everyone knows about it. I mean, if you run into most of the people, they were like, oh, yeah, I did a little bit of jiu-jitsu. I did a little bit of this, you know? So, and then I think some people just, uh, the younger generation see it a lot on TV now. And I think they, it's kind of like one of those, another avenue where they could take to be a pro fighter, you know? I, I don't think like everyone wanted to be a boxer when only boxing was around, right? Like I, now everyone, I didn't go around talking to people that are like, oh, I want to be a boxer. But now I've talked to quite a bit of even kids at our school. They're like, oh, I want to be an MMA fighter. Even at your school? Yeah, even at our school. Like, you know, we don't even have wrestling, but, you know, kids are like, oh, I'm going to be training over here. And they get exposed to it at the parks or they get exposed to it and, and they, they get the sense that they're getting better at it. Just like any sport, you get better at it. You want to compete. You start doing better in competing. Then you're going to get to a point where you're like, hey, I want to fight. When you fight, if you start doing good in fights, then you're going to get to a point where you want to fight in big shows. But it's almost a lottery system because if you're coming from a situation where your best chance out of that poverty is sports and you don't have like a better way than that where it's just 0.01%, that's a bad situation, period, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. So for your kids at your school, it's a lot of it is like either they just start working right away or what? Maybe some of them have some MMA dreams, but even then you said sometimes like they can make it as maybe go to college, get a scholarship for football, but they're like, that's still not realistic for a lot of them. I think like what everyone tries to ingrain in them is like some people come over here and we're like, hey, man, go to college right now at this point in time in your life. You have the same opportunity as everybody else. Like you're already here. You're here. Make of it. You're in public school now. It's free public education for everybody. You're here at the school. Make an opportunity for you. Go to class, get A's, learn English, do whatever you got to do and take advantage of the, of the opportunity you have here. You know, and I think like. But just because you get an education is not a level of playing field. No, it's not. But I mean, I've had, we have kids that came from like, you know, parents don't even speak English and they're getting, you know, they're going to like, you know, Cal, going to UC schools. So it's, it's not, it's not hard to do, but. So you have some success stories. Yeah. There's always, you have a lot of the other side where maybe they don't go to college or they just have to start working right away or maybe they get into the bad crowd and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. That too. Just being around like, um. Like there's, you meet some kids that just get involved with the wrong people. I'm sure you've known those people in your high school where they're like, they could probably be a good kid and they just hanging around with like the people that probably shouldn't be hanging around with. You don't know exactly what's going on in their life, but it happens, you know? That's why I'm not even mad when my car got stolen and it was found stripped near your school. <laughs> I'm not even mad about it, man. Well, that was a while back, right? <laughs> yeah, not... Oh, that was your car. My bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> did, they, did they tag all over it? No, they just strip every part. I don't know if it's your students or who did it, but they knew every piece of an old car that you could still sell. Like, you know, the... Uh, was this your 96 Accord? Yeah. What's that part for in California you need to do the emissions test? Catalytic converter? Yeah, like they stole that shit. Because that thing is like 500 bucks in the junk. Yeah, yeah, the batteries. And there's a lot of parts in a Honda that's universal. So they knew how to strip every valuable piece of thing out of that car. <laughs> so they were well-trained, man. You guys did a good job at auto class. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have auto class. I don't know. It's it's definitely a, a different side of, of what people get to see every day working in a school. People just see like the outside source of like Facebook and what yeah. people go through, but you get to see a lot of different sides of it. You know, I mean, I get to see it like kind of firsthand what these kids come with and the personalities. And then when I look at it, from the outside looking in, you know, you kind of get 
you kind of get mad at the kids for not taking the opportunity. But then at the at the other side, you're like, man, I, I kind of understand. You know, these kids come from a, a of a different background, different you know mindset. You know, my mom was over here behind me, always telling me to go to college. You know, their parents are probably like, hey, man, you got to work. So it's, it could be co completely, completely different. You know, so uh, so that's why I always kind of keep like a very unbiased when I talk to all the kids. You know, even in MMA, like MMA, I always keep very unbiased when like, oh, they're like, you know, what do you think about this guy? You think he should be still fighting and stuff? I'm like, ah. Who am I to judge? Everyone has their own life, you know? And like, like for me, it was just like, yeah, you're right. I did retire like earlier than I, than I, than I wanted to, but it's my life, you know? I wanted to get to do something different. You know, I wanted to, uh, I felt like that was a point in time where I, you know, I wasn't going to get better than what I was doing at the time. And I just stopped, but that was pretty much it. Cool. Well, I think we've gone for a while, so let's close it off here. Albert, thank you for coming in. And sharing your story about MMA and especially about the human side of LAUSD and public schools and, you know, these kids coming from South America and Latin America and what they're dealing with. So thank you for coming on. I know, man. I want, I want to thank you guys. Um, it's definitely been a long time since uh, I got interviewed. You know, it kind of was like uh, reflecting back when I was like, I did get to do it at a time where no one else did it. You know, I did get to do it. I did get to have like those experiences and, and travel the world and and meet a lot of great people and then then just switch into another job and still like have those memories to kind of take with me in the past. And you know, people ask me like at school, like, "Oh, you did MMA?" Like, I looked you up, I saw your fight. I'm like, I hope you saw one that like that I won, right? <laughs> <laughs> so make sure if you guys Google Albert, only watch the videos where he's winning. Yeah, watch the videos that I won. Don't don't give the other ones because. I mean, the videos I have now are kind of like my later in my career. So I wish I could go to like that Google and just like delete <laughs> it. <laughs> but uh, it's just, it's fun. Actually, sometimes I just like sit down and like with no one else watching, everyone's out of the room. I just watch it. Like I just look at it. And I'm like, fuck, what was I doing? <laughs> like, why did I do that? Like, you know, when everyone commentates on the people's fights, I'm like, fuck, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I just do this? But I guess it's just like, um, it's always giving me my blood. Like, even when we do jiu-jitsu, I'm the same guy that, like, if the guy gets me an armbar, I'm like, part of my, back of my DNA, I just want to just like, pick him up and slam him. 